Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. 3CR. Fight for your mic. Support 3CR's 2018 Radiothon with Greek Resistance Bulletin and Open Studio, 204 High Street, Northcote, on Thursday the 12th of July from 8 o'clock. Come and dance the night away at this 3CR radio fundraiser with performers from Open Jam Cafe Nil. Playing on the night will be Cats in the Canary, Pascalia Latra, Yorgos Sklavos, Kalliopi Stavropoulos and special guests. Supporting 3CR and the Greek Resistance Bulletin means supporting independent and radical news and voices. Open Studio 204 High Street, Northcote on Thursday the 12th of July at 8pm. Admission, $10 waged, $8 unwaged. Fight for your mic. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe... The number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. Cycle traps. Accelerating road improvements may be a positive thing, but the fa- failure to specify the development of integrated bike paths as part of the improvements is a negative. Neither Vic- Victoria Roads or Vic Roads nor the Andrews government has any de- demonstrated understanding of the need to integrate well-designed and well-constructed, easily accessed bike paths adjacent to but separated from major arterial roads and freeways. Too often, ill-lit, poorly signed, unhelpfully named, uneven or rotted and narrow bike paths with poor sight lines in out-of-sight areas make on-road cycling the safer option. Injuries injuries on an off-road bike path are not TAC covered. The governments of and road authorities of South Australia, New South Wales and Queensland leave Victoria for dead in the integrated bike path design. Chris Wallace, Albert Park. Ah, that's right, step off that bike. 
bring the heart rate down. You're listening to the Yarrabug Radio Show, a show about bikes, riding them, fixing them and loving them. Or on today's show, worried about the future of where our bike path design and our traffic integration comes from. Many thanks to Amy Goodman and Democracy Now, another insight into the dystopia that is America. Many welcome Nick on this lovely Monday morning. Nick Dowd from the Melbourne Bug is sharing the tandem with me this morning. Hi Val and, and hello to all my friends from the cycling movement who are listening in. Oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, it is a lovely Monday morning here. Um, Nick, you've got a bike moment to share with us? I've got two, if I may. Two? Because one occurred on the way here when I was riding from my home in Lonsdale Street and various buses are blowing filthy black smoke into my face as I tried to struggle down Lonsdale Street to get to Albert Street. But um, <clears throat> now the other bike moment is, is Moray Street, uh, where I can proudly point to a particular curve in one part of the roundabout that was due to my suggestion, um, where uh, Melbourne Bug and Port Phillip Bug uh, had a good interaction with the Metro Project, who were, who were rebuilding Moray Street as an alternative to St Kilda Road, and Victoria's, and as far as I know, I don't know if there's any protected roundabouts anywhere in Australia, but it's the first protected roundabout in Victoria, at least, where the bikes have a separate path around the roundabout, separated from cars and right-of-way. And I've been back a few times, and it looks like it's functioning really well. They're building the second one now. We, um, we Faith brought this up um, on our last show on the radio show. Just run us through the design of the roundabout and what makes it different, Nick. So... In a normal roundabout, the bikes and the cars fight it out at the entrance and through the roundabout, and I'll remind you that when the car turns left across in front of you, they have right-of-way, even if there's a bike lane. Um, in this roundabout, the, there's a separate roundabout around the outside of the car roundabout, and it's separated with curbs and some space uh, from the cars. So the bikes have their own roundabout, and the bike and pedestrian crossings are set back from the roundabout with enough room for a car to wait when it's exiting or leaving the roundabout without blocking the bikes and pedestrians. And that pedestrian and bike crossing is raised with piano keys, so black and white markings that are very visible to the cars. So the cars have to go over a speed hump uh, and they face a give way sign. And the angle of approach of the bike and the car is at right angles to each other instead of parallel. So the car driver isn't having to, to look, well, they don't, but you know, you're not behind the car. Yep. You can make eye contact with the car and you can easily see each other. Um, so all of these design elements were really pioneered in the Netherlands. This roundabout is a bit short of space to do it really well, um, but the designers have done absolutely the best that they could in the space. Um, and I think it's really important as the first one that we've done ever, uh, in, in, I think in Australia, I could be wrong, uh, that it's going to be a good example. But like I said, I've ridden through it a few times and, and I've watched other people riding through it and it's functioning Everyone seems to understand it quite well. So if I'm exiting, say the, the cross parts for the road, so if I'm riding across or I'm a pedestrian actually walking across the road, do I now have right of way? Yeah, the pedestrians have a zebra crossing um, with the appropriate signage, so it's legal. Um, but, you know, really the – and the bikes have right of way as well. as a give way sign to the cars. But, you know, what is really more important than that is the speed bump, the, the raised nature of the crossing and the piano keys that are very visual for the cars. Um, and, and the fact that the cars, um, at a lot of roundabouts, the cars turning left, for example, 
have a have an easy curve to make, but at this roundabout, they're forced to make a tight curve uh. and they're forced to slow down. The entrance to the roundabout is quite narrow and visually for the cars, they've got to slow down and think about it and then they've got to turn sharply to get into the roundabout. roundabout. So they're already going slowly. And by the time the car gets to where you're crossing as a pedestrian or a cyclist, they've already gone through all of this and they've hit a speed hump. Yeah. Um, and so... It's really that visual messaging which determines the driver behaviour, not the giveaway signs and not the no. rules of the law or who's got right of way. Yeah. It's the physical nature of the road. Of, of how it's built. Yeah. I remember watching a um, video of one of the ones in the Netherlands, it was supposed to be four or five years ago, and they were quite large. You know, there's a, they, some of them occupy a big space, but you could see the sight lines on every bend and you could see the way cars went through it. It completely changed the way it worked. You know, the Netherlands has two sorts of ways of doing these roundabouts. In one, the bikes have right away, and in the other, they don't. Uh, and there's an argument out which is best, actually. But look, another thing on that round on that roundabout is, <clears throat> um, Bicycle Network pub, have published uh, something on their website about it, and it's a little bit disappointing that they haven't uh, said anything good about it at all, really. And they're basically saying, you know, you better be careful because a motorist will run you over. It's it's really disappointing mm. to see the first protected roundabout, something we've wanted for ages, and all Bicycle Network can, can think of is something negative. Can we just do a, in pursuant of what we'll be talking about later, give us a rough idea of who came together to get the design and then actually get it built? Well, this is an interesting one. Um, I mean, Murray Street is a local street, I'm pretty sure. Uh, it's not a declared road. Um, so do you want me to talk about, you know, what, all that means? and Yeah, well, let's just go through the mechanics of yeah. how we get it up because we can talk about the other side of it later. Um, so <clears throat> um, there are two sorts of roads in Victoria. There's declared roads and local roads. And declared roads are under the direct uh, control of the state through, through Vic Roads. And declared roads are sort of nominally belong to local councils. And certainly they pay the cost of maintaining them. But the council's power isn't absolute, and in fact, if they want to change just about anything, they have to get permission from Vic Roads, and Vic Roads has their sort of rules. And um, so, and quite often, Vic Roads is heavily involved in local road projects, even funding them occasionally. So that that's a sort of quick summary of how it works. Yeah. In the case of Murray Street, the agency wasn't Vic Roads; it was, as I mentioned, Melbourne Metro, and and they're they're just trying to provide an alternative because St Kilda Road is going to be constrained. Yeah. Um, and so Paul Phillip Council was heavily involved and actually I might mention that's one of the reasons why we got such a good outcome because Paul Phillip Council is consistently through its offices advocating for best outcomes for bikes um, whereas in the City of Melbourne's interactions with Melbourne Metro we're getting poor results, very poor results we've got painted door zone bike lanes in kiss and ride spots mm. next to the new metro stations because the Melbourne City of Melbourne Council officer offices, better not get personal um, have not advocated for good outcomes with Melbourne Metro. And Melbourne Metro got a huge job. They just want to get it done. Um, and the city of Port Phillip did a great job on Murray Street, which is their street. It's a local street. Yeah. So they have a say. No, well, good. And they actually get it through in the end. <laughs> I'll be brief on my bicycle moment. I'm just continually amazed, actually, um, as we, as the seasons change in Melbourne, and I mean, I ride I ride the same way to 3CR all the time and part of it's the, uh, my normal commute. 
how the slow changing of the seasons, how Fitzroy Garden and parts of East Melbourne don't have their leafy coverage anymore and winter's reaching up. And if you look in the middle of Fitzroy Gardens, you know the daffodils will soon be coming up. What are you doing in the Fitzroy Gardens on a bicycle? I'm riding alongside it. I'm watching from the other side. Sometimes I do cheat going through that. <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> now, just a, a, a little bit of news before we slide into that topic of um, the Melbourne City Council's Transport Strategy discussion paper. Um, news, um, after a, an appeal or two appeals, a city, the, the German city of Hamburg has banned diesel cars and trucks from two of their roads. This has been a quite a long process. Well, not really that long, but they're actually not like other councils threatening to ban or putting a 2020 timeline on it. The two streets in Hamburg had to fit a criteria as far as uh, emissions, and they were the two it was picked. There was then an appeal against it, but now it has gone through. So as of, I think it's about two and a half weeks ago now, that has become the first city in Europe to actually ban them as of now. It's a bit of a it's a trend all through Europe and the continent, Nick though, isn't it? The Good ban- question, which country was diesel invented in? I'm gonna think Germany, but I know I might be wrong. Diesel was a German. Yes, I and know because it. it's spelt that way. <laughs> anyway, so in other news which might have escaped somebody, but it's been part of the saga that I've been following here. Um, Martin uh, Winterkorn used to be the CEO of Volkswagen. He resigned as soon as the emission scandal came out in 2014. He has now become the the highest chief, the highest executive in amongst the um, Volkswagen family to be charged with conspiracy. Two other lower down managing levels of Volkswagen are all already serving prison terms and um, after in 2017 Volkswagen pleaded guilty to conspiracy to invade, to evade the Clean Air Act. So that just keeps ticking along, ticking along, ticking along. You've got to point out that it's not just Volkswagen. All of the diesel car manufacturers exceed their standards and they're all being party to fraud. Yes, and it's been a long-time advertising campaign right from the 80s all the way through to sell diesel cars as clean because nobody worried about particulates or nitrous oxide or anything else. Now we do. It's a great campaign. It's like drink Coke. (laughs) Anyway, it might be coming to an end even now as we speak. Oh, gradually. I mean, the thing is, the love affair with the motor vehicle is the reason why we're still poisoning ourselves in the cities and killing ourselves in the cities with them. And people just don't want to give them up. And the latest panacea is, you know, self-driving cars are going to solve all the problems. And it's it's, it's equal it's equally bullshit, I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, oh, well. Now, because we should look to the future and try and see what it looks like, Melbourne City Council have released a transport strategy discussion paper. Now, it's a discussion paper to inform a new City Melbourne transport strategy to 2050. A draft strategy will be released for consulta- consultation in 2080. We are seeking your views on these issues and ideas. Now, a couple of discussion 
paper highlights a couple of things. One of the things is that at the moment there are fewer motor vehicles coming into the city. There's been a gradual decline in how many um, how many cars are actually coming into the city. The city of Melbourne has the highest rate of pedestrian road trauma in Victoria, um, and uh, when you say fewer cars, that's only by measuring trips to work. Yep. There are actually more vehicles every year in the city of Melbourne. Are there? Yeah, still well, going up. You would expect a city, our population is going to increase it's again. Del- so. Deliveries and commercial and through traffic uh, in the city. Um, but yeah, commuting by car is down as a proportion. No. Uh, and their projections are the the number of people in the municipality is except, expected to grow from about 900,000 per day to about 1.4 million per day in 2036. And Matthew Guy approved all of these pretty poorly designed towers for residents to live in. And he was the first to come out and say that this uh, discussion paper we're talking about is crazy if it talks about having fewer cars in the city. And he actually specifically said that all these people in these big apartments have to drive home. What planet does he live on? Uh, <laughs> Not this one. Um, in in their strategy, Melbourne City Council ask a couple of questions. They're calling them what-ifs. Uh, cars which we do not have a destination in the central city but are just travelling through were removed from the huddle grid, releasing space for other users. These are quite a lot of these topics are, are things that they want addressed and they're asking for input about them. So when you say they, you're referring to the city of Melbourne, but the city of Melbourne is a whole bunch of silos. Yep. And the people who are writing these strategies or having or supervising them are the um, strategic planners. And the strategic planners are great. Uh, we meet them and they know what's what. And their ideas are good and they're moving in the right direction for the right reasons. The problem is that they don't implement anything. The people who implement these things are the engineers. And sometimes, if we're lucky, the urban designers. The urban designers are good. The engineers are terrible. We've sat down with the engineers and pointed out that their drawings uh, don't do what the current transport strategy says they should do and they just look blank. They don't read the strategy. No. And what, we've, what we're talking about today is discussion papers leading to a strategy. Yep. You know, so the issue is what, what council will actually implement. And even when councillors want things, you know, if the officers aren't producing the drawings with these things in them, it's very hard for councillors, to, to, even councillors, to, to direct that process. That, that's the issue. So uh, there's good things in these, in these discussion yeah, papers. Yeah. They're very good things. Um, and, and they must be good because both political parties oppose it. Um, but the big question is, you know, what you actually get implemented. So we should go back to that question then, or which we haven't raised before, I haven't raised, is who actually has the ultimate control over the streets in the city of Melbourne, particularly the CBD? <clears throat> so in theory, the city of Melbourne... So one of the ideas in the discussion paper is is uh, reducing the number of car lanes and repurposing the space for more pedestrian space, uh, bicycle lanes... Uh, I don't. I didn't see it specifically mentioned, but maybe some more grass and trees. Even you know, you could have, and they're doing it in South Bank now. Yep. That's going to start this year. The work where we're going to have parkland where there's where there were car lanes. So it talks about that. So you know, um, and Melbourne Bug, we've been we've been advocating for that to basically take half of streets like Russell Street or Queen Street and turn them into linear parks, and have one car lane in each direction instead of yep. two. Um, 
So we're very, very happy to support that sort of idea. And in theory, the city of Melbourne could do it in Russell Street because it's a local street. It's not under it's not under state control. So, what's the difference between a local state under state control and the in, now, who controls those streets? Apart so in the city of Melbourne, in the CBD, there's only a couple of streets, uh, like King Street, which are declared roads. So yep. they're uh, <clears throat> from the curb to the curb, you know, where the cars are, that's totally under the control of Vic Roads and the city and the state, mm-hmm. and and the city has no say. Um, although, to be fair, Vic Roads will come and talk to the city of, of even about declared roads. They'll they'll at least involve them in the discussion. And then the other sort of road, there's only two sorts. The other sort of road belongs to the city, and they pay for everything, and they do the planning, and in theory, they control them. But as I mentioned. They have to get permission from Vic Roads. And this is where if the city said, right, we're going to cut Russell Street in half and half is going to turn into a big linear park, the city, the state could stop them because they have to get approval from the state, even though it's a local road under the council control. So in the essence, they haven't got 100% control over the road. No. And, you know, the comments by the Premier and, and Matthew Guy would indicate that they're not going to allow these sorts of things to happen. No. So how do so it's now not just a couple of city councils talking to each other to get plans or build a separated laneway somewhere. Now you bring in somebody else. You mean as in the state government? Yeah. <clears throat> Look, the the uh, separated bike lanes in Wellington Street, not far from here, that's a local road. The council could do it, but they still had to get Vic Roads to approve it. Yeah. And. Um, St Kilda Road is a local road between the CBD and uh, South Bank Boulevard, you know, so where the arts centre is and all that. That's actually yep. a local road. But to put in the bike lane and take away a car lane and put in the bike lane, um, that required Vic Road's approval. Approval, yeah. And that's yeah. a perfect example of having one design everybody agrees on and then having it pushed over at the end. Yeah, and, the, and in that case, the engineers at the City of Melbourne did work for the plan and they got the approvals for an inbound and an outbound lane on the bridge for bikes, and the councillors turned down the outbound lane yeah. after the engineers had done the work and got Vic Roads to approve it. This is a local road, but you can see that it's it's um, the state has the final call. No. Nick, you've resided in the CBD for now how many years? Oh, about 15 years. What has been the biggest change? Apart from, a, I would imagine, the population's doubled in the CBD in that time. Yes, although you can't tell on the streets <clears throat> who's a resident and who isn't. Well, some people are obviously tourists. Um, yeah, there's more people in the city. I think the biggest change uh, that I've noticed is the retail environment. And rents have gone up. The city, the intensity of use of the city has gone up. And a lot of types of use have simply departed. They can't afford the rents so we used to have, you know, Clegg's, the haberdashery, the material shop. We used to have a Bunnings in the city. Before that, it was a McEwan's. Where there's no hardware store in the city. Um, the Light Globe shop closed, Rexel. Um, so it's it's all places where you can eat and buy expensive clothes is all that's left. And, I mean, that's exactly what happened to Ligon Street 20 years ago. But it's happened across the whole of the CBD. So, actually, if you're a resident, you've now got to travel out of the city um, to get a screwdriver or, you know, a lot of useful things that yeah. you need. Um, so that, as a resident, that's the thing that I really notice. Um, other than that, not much has changed really. So when 
they say, my word, it's reported, or Melbourne City Council say they have the highest um, rate of pedestrian road trauma in Victoria. Is that, did, have you noticed that? Or that you've noticed that, that it's become... Have I been run over lately? No, but you can notice whether it's risky to actually be a pedestrian in the city. You know, when you talk about rates, a rate is always a denominator and a numerator. Yeah. You've got to divide one number by another number to get a rate. Yep. So I don't know what they're using as the denominator because there's, you know, going on for a million visitors per day in the city of Melbourne. That's a big denominator. Yeah. I actually don't think it's more dangerous. I think it's probably safer in the city. But there are yeah. so many people that, you know, per acre, sure, per hectare, we, we you might have more pedestrian injuries. But per person who's visiting, I think the city's pretty safe. And one of the reasons is the cars are going quite slowly. Quite slow. I mean, mostly they're not moving at all. Um, and... Uh, and people who drive in the CBD, I mean, you get some wackos, but people tend to drive a bit cautiously because even for motorists, it's a somewhat hostile environment. No. Um, and it's the city. So, I, I, I mean, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing something about pedestrian trauma. And obviously, if there's a lot of it, because there's a lot of people, then it's a good place to, to reduce it because you'll get uh, you know, more harm reduction. Yeah. No. Um, but... As far as scaring people about being in the city, I don't, I don't think it's a good tragedy. I'm, I'm not scaring people. What I was trying to do is highlight that it's a bit of a throwaway line. When you look at pedestrian deaths in Victoria, most of them occur in 60-kilometre zones. You know, They're not yeah. inner-city deaths. But I'm, I must admit that is death, but that's usually the best indicator of them. They're not in the middle of cities. The other thing that's happened during the week, am I right in Brisbane's now... Put in a thirty-kilometer speed zone. I might be wrong. I might I have checked that. I heard it on the radio it. the other day. Yeah, I did see something about it. I don't know whether it's just a proposal, uh, or whether that, or whether they've, you know, made the final decision. But even to get to that stage puts them ahead of. I'm not sure if per, what Perth has done, but it certainly puts them ahead of Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide. No. Yeah, thirty kilometers per hour is the evidence-based speed at which pedestrians are unlikely to die. And by the time you get to 40 kilometres an hour, you're yeah, much you're more over. likely to die. It's a real yeah. point of inflection there. So it's the evidence-based speed. What can you say? Who controls the speed limits in the Melbourne City Council? Well, again, on the local roads, the City of Melbourne can, in theory, decide to have a 20k limit, but yeah. they have to get the approval of Vic Roads. And Vic Roads will say, you've got this big, wide, straight road that invites people to do a certain speed, you can't have a lower speed limit. Yeah. You've got to change the facts on the ground. Yeah, or the look of the road, or as we were talking about with Sight the roundabout, the, the way it looks to a motorist, yeah. and how does that yeah. influence their behaviour? That's right. Uh, <laughs> I must admit it's... Um, the other question I wanted to get to the bottom of when... When I was asking you about living in the in the city, how much has it, it? How much more? Oh, there's a lot more to do. But the actual whole thing about the bicycle in the city, you know, ninety percent of the bikes in the city after dark are food delivery bikes, um, and and you know I'm I'm the other one percent, and uh, I just wish they'd take the lane more often. They they ride down the door zone, um, but we haven't talked. I haven't talked on this program about the work we did in Flinders Lane, have I? No. Um, Melbourne Metro uh, occasionally has been closing Flinders Lane to through traffic and just allowing local traffic in. 
where they're digging it up. And so we took the opportunity, we being Melbourne Buck, to do traffic counts. And we counted the cars using Flinders Lane in two blocks, the, the busy block down between Swanson and Elizabeth and the yep. block where Metro are working up to Russell Street. And we counted them on successive days when there was only local traffic. And there's, in the seven, sort of seven hours, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., there's about 200 cars, like nothing. Yeah. And um, that's, a, you know, a car every few minutes. Yeah. And it's really interesting watching how the pedestrians just intuit. No one tells them, but they just start walking on the road. They just take it over. And you can easily ride a bike in both directions. Yeah. And what, that's what we're calling for is um, we want to make the little streets local traffic only. And you could do it with out loss of any or much parking. Um, so your your shops and your businesses and your residents who wanted to get a delivery or whatever wouldn't change for them. You'd still get the delivery car in there. And in fact, the delivery car or truck would have a lot less traffic to deal with. But it would mean that you could ride your bike in both directions. Uh, you would definitely decrease that rate of pedestrian casualties that we were talking about. Um, and you wouldn't even have to do expensive work. You wouldn't have to change the curb line much, if at all. No. Uh, it's very doable. And, um, you know, you see the traffic clogging up the little streets. You can be quite sure that most of that traffic is through traffic. Yeah. Using our little streets as rat runs. Yeah. So we were able to demonstrate um, with with the numbers uh, what you could do. And, and you would do it with things like you would reverse the one-way direction for a block so that you couldn't have any you through traffic. Go through. Yeah. yeah, and that that's that's you know, I think that's sort of in line with the discussion papers we're talking about. They haven't specifically yeah, yeah, said no, things like that. They make a highlight of that and actually the fact that um, I mean we've already got a head start on things like A C D Lane and stuff like that which now populate you know, those are the you know, and Flinders Lane and Little Collins Street. They're the places that people just fill up straight away as soon as you take the traffic away from them. And they're highlighting, you know, New York's a perfect example with Times Square and the streets leading off that. Um, and London, too, has changed that because there have been a couple of other things like that. It's a pretty small number. Why? Anyway, yep. I had to say good things about Boris Johnson, but he, he in the end, put in some damn good bike facilities and the Labor Party mayor who's succeeded him has stopped it all. Hasn't built one. They're all finished, no. mate. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Nick, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Uh, many thanks for coming in. We're going to come back as part of the release of this, uh, the transport strategy discussion paper. The Melbourne City Council released a report on the air quality in Melbourne CBD. So in two weeks' time, we'll be having a... It's not something you can gallop through, but we'll be having a closer look at that in light of actually you sitting behind a bus in the city choking experiencing the reality of it yeah. yeah many thanks to anybody who's donated to the Yarrabug radio show that's fine Bell. say again that's fine Bell. yes <laughs> um, many thanks up next is um, sorry jailbreak you've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.